0: here at New Hope Community Church. Um, This morning we are pleased and excited to welcome Dr. Rebecca Eklund uh, to uh, open our series, The New Way to Be Human, uh, series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Just uh, looking forward to that. Um, But before, um, uh, Dr. Eklund is a professor at Loyola. Uh, She's a published author and a minister in the Evangelical Covenant Church. Um, And before she comes, uh, would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, and for, and for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Brothers and sisters, all flesh is grass, and the beauty of that grass is like the flower of a field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this, the word of our God, endures forever. Amen. Amen. Please welcome, as you have a seat, uh, Dr. Rebecca Eklund.
1: Oh, no, no clapping. You can't clap until I'm done and then see how you like it. So greetings to you in the name of God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a real joy for me to be with you this morning. I think I met Pastor Joe um, a year or two ago when I was doing a guest gig um, teaching a class um, just for a day on Romans, I think, um, over at the Ecumenical Institute, but my full-time gig is at Loyola University, Maryland, um, where I love teaching theology and scripture and ethics to undergrads, um, but I don't get to preach that often, and the Word of God is my, is my real heart, and so um, I'm really excited to be with you this morning just to open up this little section of the Word of God together with you. I have been reading for the last four or five years about the Beatitudes, because I'm writing a book about the Beatitudes, and about how people throughout history have been um, applying and understanding and wrestling with the Beatitudes. I've never gotten tired of them. Like all of the scripture, the Beatitudes are inexhaustibly rich. The deeper you dig, the more they yield. But the problem about um, knowing so much about the Beatitudes is that I could talk to you about them until Tuesday. Um, But Pastor Joe has given me a time limit, which I promise to honor, so I'll have you out by at least Monday morning. We've just heard the Beatitudes read, and I'm glad that Pastor Joe read the first two verses, which is the introduction to the whole Sermon on the Mount, because I think it's important. It's easy to skip right past those two verses and get straight to the blessings but I want to look first for just a minute or two at verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. Of course, it's important that Jesus goes up a mountain, since this is meant to remind us of Moses going up a mountain to receive the law from God. Jesus, instead of receiving, gives, which makes him less like Moses and more like God. And instead of giving a new law, He gives a new way of interpreting and understanding God's law that he had already given. So that's important because it tells us something about who Jesus is and what he intends to do in the Sermon on the Mount. But I also want to look at one other detail of verse 1. Right before Jesus delivers the Beatitudes, he saw the crowds. He sees them. He sees the farmers and the fishermen working hard to eke out a living, but crushed by Roman taxes. He sees the tax collectors who collect those exorbitant taxes and suffer the social shame of exclusion because of it. He sees the widows who depend completely on the mercy of whoever chooses to share with them out of their own lack. He sees the Samaritans and the Gentiles and the way that other people in the crowd avoid them and try not to touch them. He sees the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the criminals, the homeless, the least of these, which means he sees a little bit of himself reflected back in their weary faces. And that's when he speaks the Beatitudes, declaring them the blessed ones, the favored ones, the ones who belong to God's kingdom. Imagine now that you're there in the crowd that day. Jesus sees you too. He sees you. He knows your deep griefs and your profound joys, your pain and your pride, and he has some blessings for you. If you are suffering, the Beatitudes are for you. If you're struggling or depressed or unemployed or grieving, The Beatitudes are for you. Someone once wrote that the Beatitudes reveal our dignity when we feel least dignified. If you don't feel dignified, these Beatitudes are yours. The blessings are for the broken. The Beatitudes are also for you if you're surrounded by suffering and you want to do something about it. They're for you if your heart breaks when other people are broken. They're for you if you long for justice to be done. They're for you if you desire to draw nearer to Jesus. They're for you if you want to build a bridge to someone or if you just want to calm the storm in your own heart. How could the Beatitudes be all these things, you might be wondering? Well, the longer I studied them, the more I became convinced that they are all these things and more. They're deceptively simple. There's a reason that people have sometimes said that the Beatitudes, these eight short blessings, hold the whole gospel inside of them. So I want to look at each one of them briefly in turn. The first Beatitude can be understood as the foundation, the starting point for all the rest. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit is the opposite of rugged independence. It's about knowing your desperate need for God. It's a humble dependence on God's help. The tax collector is poor in spirit when he prays, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus tells his disciples about this man in his humble prayer because he admires him. This man is honest about who he is, a sinner who needs God's help. And he is brave enough to ask for it. When Billy Graham's friend, Sherwood Wirt, described this beatitude, he wrote this, God cannot fill our cups with the water of life until they have been drained of all other waters. The kingdom of God is ours, but only if we're poor enough to enter, only if we're empty enough to be filled. The challenge of this beatitude, of course, is to figure out how to drain ourselves of other waters. We can be full to the brim with so many cares that there's no room for God to fill us up with himself. We can be full of our own accomplishments, our jobs, and our families, and our material possessions, and our social calendars. These are good things. But if they are the center of our lives, God will remain at the edge, knocking on the door, asking to come in. Poverty of spirit means carving out enough space in the center for God to take up residence there. Opening ourselves up to God's help also means breaking open our heart to others. So we become those who mourn. We mourn, of course, for our own sorrows, for the loss of people we love, for our broken dreams and shattered hopes. And we only have to turn on the television on any given night and watch the evening news to be overcome by the horror of war and the thousands of refugees fleeing from it, or by the devastation of floods and hurricanes, or by the terror of innocent people murdered by people wielding guns in schools and stores, and here in Baltimore. We weep with those who weep. If we only had the first half of this beatitude, we might be left wondering why mourning is blessed at all. How can grief be an honorable state, a favored state, a mark of the kingdom? It's because of the second half. They shall be comforted. As the psalmist tells us, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Sometimes I think the Lord is most near to the brokenhearted. The word comfort in the beatitude does not mean a quick hug or a band-aid. Comfort in the biblical sense means to make whole. It means to strengthen, deepen, and uplift. It means to bring home. In the Bible, the promise of comfort becomes a promise about the present and about the future. In the present, comfort is about the Holy Spirit— and about God's promise to walk with us through our darkest valleys. In the future, it's about God's promise that death and dying will someday be no more, and that God will dwell with us forever. When Jesus says, they shall be comforted, he means both now and then, when God will undo this old age and make a new creation, where there are no more tears. Standing on the solid foundation of this promise, we can be confident enough to be meek. Now, being meek does not mean being timid or afraid or quiet. It does not refer to people who never get angry. Instead, it refers to people who never lose their tempers. One writer describes meekness as disciplined gentleness. The meek are strong. They are strong enough to know not to fight back. The meek willingly yield to God and to others, but they also know when to stand their ground. Martin Luther King Jr. and the other civil rights leaders were meek when they turned the other cheek over and over again and refused to meet violence with violence. But they were also meek, when they never gave up their courageous quest for justice. The meek are strong enough to control their anger, to know the right things to be angry about. They don't fly off the handle when they're cut off in traffic, but they do become outraged when the poor and the powerless are trampled on. Knowing the right things to be angry about means that we need to have a hunger for righteousness or justice. Jesus declares that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or for justice are blessed. The word in Greek could mean both. And I think the beatitude has both in mind. Hungering for righteousness means joining in the prayer of the psalmist who cries out, As the deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. Do you long for God? Are you thirsty for God's presence? The prophet Jeremiah promised that God waits to be found by those who seek him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be filled to overflowing. Hungering for justice means longing for God's justice to be made manifest in all the places where injustice reigns. It means praying, as we already did this morning, your will be done on earth as it is already done in heaven. The prophet Micah tells us that God's will is for all people to walk humbly with God, to love kindness, and to do justice. Hunger for righteousness and hunger for justice is about Micah's three-part instruction. Long to walk with God, desire to show God's kindness, strive for justice. Justice needs kindness. Justice needs mercy. Time and time again in the scripture we see the wideness of God's mercy, the way that God's justice is always accompanied by God's mercy, by God's steadfast love, which is another way of saying kindness in scripture. So Jesus Jesus declares that the merciful are also the blessed ones, the favored ones, the ones who belong to his kingdom. The merciful not only weep with those who weep, but are moved to try to dry the tears. Mercy reaches out with a gentle hand to heal all kinds of hurts, shame, hunger, loneliness, guilt. The merciful feed the hungry and shelter the homeless. They include the excluded. Just as Jesus ate dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, the merciful forgive those who wrong them. All this means that being merciful might sound easy, but it's not. It often takes a great deal of courage to be merciful, to forgive real wrongs, to reach across boundaries, to look a suffering person in the eye and really see them. Mercy needs mourning, and it needs meekness. It needs a hunger for justice. Perhaps more than any other beatitude, this one needs the others. What does Jesus promise to the merciful? They will receive mercy. In fact, most of the New Testament actually reverses that equation. Out of gratitude for the mercy that God has already shown us, we in turn Show mercy to others. Okay, three more beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. A Christian philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard gave us the most well-known definition of purity. To will one thing. The pure in heart are the single-minded, not the double-minded. We know who the pure in heart always are, because they know who they are. They're the ones who sing, as we sang today, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Like the tax collector, they rightly know themselves to be sinners. But they commit to practices that disentangle themselves a little more all the time from the clutches of sin, the things that are sometimes called the spiritual disciplines, prayer, the study of scripture, the fellowship and support of brothers and sisters in Christ. And what promise is given to the pure in heart? They shall see God. Like the promise of comfort, this one has both a present aspect and a future one. As Paul writes in the letter to the Corinthians, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face then face to face by then paul means the second coming of christ in glory when the old age comes to an end and the new age begins for a long time christians have believed that the true purpose of being human is to be in loving face-to-face relationship with the god who created them and that therefore the highest joy of human existence is someday to see God in all God's beauty and glory. But now we see in a mirror dimly, or in the more elegant King James, now we see through a glass darkly. We catch glimpses of God now in scripture, in prayer, in the magnificence and power of the created world. We catch glimpses of God in Jesus. And we catch glimpses of God in one other place. In one of his letters, John wrote, When God is revealed, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will be like him. We already know that we're like God in some way because of Genesis which tells us that every human being bears the image of God. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. For some ancient writers, seeing God means learning to see the image of God in every person we encounter. Of all the things I read about this particular beatitude, this one was the one that captivated me the most. I returned to it over and over again, wondering about it. Is my heart pure enough, clear enough, clean enough to recognize God's image in every single person I encounter every day? In the person in line with a hundred items in their cart in the ten items or less checkout, of the grocery store. There, there, that's a glimpse of God's glory through a glass, darkly. In the refugees so desperate to start a new life that they've left home and walked hundreds of miles to find a new country to feel safe in, there, that's a glimpse of God's beauty seen through a mirror dimly. In the stranger, And the Muslim in the innocent face of a child and the weary face of an old woman. If our hearts are clear enough, we might see God. When Jesus declares that the peacemakers are blessed, this one is so obvious it hardly needs explanation. We've already prayed for peace today in Syria and Yemen. Our world cries out for people who can make peace. The war in Afghanistan started before some of my students were even born. It seems to me that people who vote Democratic and people who vote Republican are finding it increasingly hard to talk to one another without shouting or wanting to throw things. And then there are all the smaller conflicts that tear apart marriages and friendships and families. Blessed are the peacemakers sounds to me more like a plea than a description. Peacemakers are called God's children because they're doing God's work, reconciling people to God, reconciling people to one another, beating swords of all kinds into plowshares. Finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness or for the sake of justice. If the blessing on the peacemakers is the easiest one to see how it might apply to us, this one might be the hardest. Unlike the other ones, or at least most of the other ones, this one isn't for us to seek out. We're not called to throw ourselves into the path of persecution, the way that we're called to become more merciful. It's easy to think of examples of Christians in other places of the world who are genuinely persecuted for their commitment to Christ. Our brothers and sisters in Syria, in Sri Lanka, in Nigeria, in Egypt, and in so many other places around the world. Blessed are they. To them belongs the kingdom. This beatitude calls us to pray for them and to stand in solidarity with them and to do whatever we can to protect them and offer them refuge. But what about us? For the most part, Christians in the United States aren't persecuted for our faith. Some of us might face social pressures or hard choices about how to live out our faith in a courageous way. I don't want to downplay those things. They're important, and they can be hard and painful. But most of us won't lose property or be thrown in jail or be executed simply because of our refusal to renounce Christ. This blessing calls for us to wonder about how it might apply to us or to others. And it reminds us of where else in the world Christians are being displaced and killed for their faith. Just from this quick tour through these eight blessings, I hope you can see how multi layered they are. I think we've also seen how contrary they are to the things that the world tends to value. They are paradoxes. Contradictions, the world turned upside down. Not strength, but weakness. Not self sufficiency, but total dependence on God and others. Not standing our ground, but yielding. Not grasping, but letting go. One way to think about the Beatitudes, and one way I've tried to model in a small way here today, is that they flow into one another and intertwine with one another. For example, being a peacemaker means also being meek, because it's very hard to make peace with other people if you're constantly losing your temper. So if all eight beatitudes seem like a lot to you to try to master all at once, begin with humility, with recognizing your need for God. Or begin with whichever one captures your imagination, or whichever one already names a state of life you find yourself in, like mourning or hungering. Remember that each beatitude has two halves. Without the promise, they're simply things that we'd never want to do or be able to do without God's help. But with the promises, they become a part of how God works grace in us, even as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says. The Beatitudes teach us to strain forward toward the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are also one more thing, and this is what I will close with. This is perhaps the most important thing of all. The Beatitudes show us who Jesus is. They're sometimes called the autobiography? autobiography of Jesus. Jesus was broken. He breaks his own body and gives it to us. That's what he does with bread, of course. He breaks it, he blesses it, and he gives it to us. But that's also what he does with himself. Jesus was poor in spirit. He humbly depended on his father. He emptied himself of his divine status and submitted even to the shame of being executed as a criminal, praying, your will be done. Jesus mourned. He wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. He cried over the city of Jerusalem for not recognizing the gift that God was trying to give his people. And he cried out in lament from the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was meek. Come to me, he says, all you who are carrying heavy burdens, for I am meek. It might say gentle in uh, some translations, but it's the same word. I am gentle. I am meek. Jesus gets angry. He even overturns a few tables. But he never uses his anger to destroy or hurt anybody. He hungered and thirsted, quite literally, on the cross. But he also hungered for God's justice to be done. His whole life was oriented around a deep desire to do God's will. He was merciful. Over and over in the Gospels, he heals the sick and the lame and the blind. He feeds a hungry crowd. He refuses to judge a woman caught in adultery, protecting her instead. He was deeply moved by compassion whenever he saw the crowds and their deep needs. He forgave all of them, even the ones who betrayed him and crucified him. He was pure in heart. He has an advantage over us in this one, being without sin. But his purity also shines forth in his single-mindedness in a way that he never strayed from his purpose. It would have been so easy to give up on his confused and wandering disciples to lead a normal life. He treated every single person he met with dignity. I wonder if he saw the image of his father in them. He was a peacemaker. He called people who should have been enemies to be disciples together, a group of fishermen and a tax collector. The fishermen should have hated the tax collector for participating in Roman imperial rule. The tax collector could have despised the lower-class fishermen. Jesus made them hang out together with three years with nobody else for company. Jesus was also the ultimate peacemaker, making peace between God and humanity on the cross. For the Apostle Paul, Jesus' death closes the gap between Jews and Gentiles, between two types of humanity that had formerly been estranged. One new humanity where there had once been two. And Jesus was persecuted The religious and political leaders of his day arrested him on false charges, stripped him of his dignity, tortured him, and killed him. So when we think about what it means to live by the Beatitudes, what we're really asking is what it means to be more like Jesus, to take up our cross every day, and to follow him. Please join with me in prayer. Gracious God, you see us in all our poverty and our need and our grief, and you declare us blessed. Help us to turn toward you in trust and receive these blessings, walking with Jesus wherever he leads us, becoming more like him. Father, help us to see people the way that Jesus saw people, to really see them, to see the image of your beauty in them. Give us a firm and steady hope in all your promises, even when the storms of life rage around us. Help us to trust that one day we will see you face to face and enter into your kingdom with joy. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.